Good to be with you, family. Go ahead and uh, if you have a Bible, grab it. Go to Luke chapter 9. Uh, that's where we are. That's where we're going to be for the next probably two weeks. Um, and this is a really important chapter, which I'll dive into in a minute. But um, if you're just visiting, we're really glad that you're here with us this morning. Uh, this is just a worship service, and we, we love Jesus. We love to worship him and proclaim his name and sing songs about him. And it was just uh, super sweet to hear you guys singing uh, this morning. I don't know. Uh, there's something about just actually hearing the voices of, of uh, God's people singing and proclaiming and worshiping him uh, that, that does something uh, and demonstrates something beautiful. So uh, great to, to be worshiping with you guys. As we continue in our worship, we worship through uh, studying the scriptures, through reading the scriptures, through uh, seeing the person and work of Jesus. And particularly right now, we're in the gospel according to Luke. There's four gospels that are written in. What we have is the divine scriptures of God. And so um, Luke is one. He's a physician. He's writing. He's writing to this Roman official, and he's basically wanting to show Theophilus this guy who was kind of interested in the teachings of Jesus and the life of Jesus, that he could be certain of them, and not just be certain, but be transformed by them. So we, we're going to say over and over and over, we want to see transformation by the Holy Spirit of God in our lives through the person and work of Jesus Christ. If that's not happening, then that's not Christianity. And so uh, we gather, not just because we think this is a fun hobby, or because we think that it's kind of cute to sing songs and listen to some guy for an hour, and then sing more songs, and then leave. We, we believe in the transforming work of of Jesus Christ who was God who came in the flesh as God fully man and lived our life for us he died for us he took on the wrath of God the debt of sin that we owed God he paid it in full rose again validating that he had full authority over it and then he gifts his Holy Spirit to those who trust in that very work to then lead a life of joy lead a life of transformation to be ambassadors of of of, of reconciliation showing this lost dying world of their spiritual need for the same spiritual need that's been met in us so um, if you're not a Christian if you've never been um, interested in Jesus or you've never trusted in him we want you to remember that you're in really good company with people who sin okay so we're all sinners saved by a great God a great Jesus who did all that for us, and so that's why we just worship him in response. And so, what we're going to actually see this morning is we're continuing to look at this Jesus, this Jesus who did come, who's not just a historical figure, not just a great teacher, not just some moral guy, not just a magic man, not just a wonder worker. He was God Himself, and He came and did some profound things, all to point to the great act that He did in being slaughtered and rising again for the sins of mankind. So um, here in chapter 9 is where we are. Luke chapter 9 matters. Remember last week because this really is like the door hinge of Luke. So he is basically wrapping up his Galilean ministry. He's going to turn his face ultimately towards Jerusalem by the end of this chapter. Um, and this is kind of the, the, dead, the dead center of his ministry. It's been about a year and a half. and He's got about a year and a half left. And uh, he's wrapping up. He's going to head somewhere else. So what happened was um, after he had done a bunch of these things. He went back to Nazareth, to his hometown. He went to the synagogue. You can see that in other Gospels. And people didn't like that he was revealing their spiritual need. He was really re- revealing to them their sickness of sin. And so they try to throw him off a cliff. So he comes back over. And then last week, we saw him come back. And he says, hey, i got to wrap up my ministry. He grabs the 12 apostles. They've been faithful. They've been humble. They've been following. They've been teachable. Then he sends them out on basically their first internship, so to speak. They cast out demons, raise the dead to life through his authority, through his ability. And then after this, what we see here is after they come back, they're going to report to Jesus the things that they did. And Jesus is going to do one of the most profound miracles, I think, he does in his ministry. Now, there's two reasons I think this. One, just by sheer size, this is the biggest miracle that Jesus has ever done. 
Um, he feeds the 5,000. Now, we know there's probably more than 5,000 because Matthew says besides women and children, there's 5,000. And Luke's going to say there are 5,000 men. So if you couple in wives and then no birth control, you've got a lot of babies, big families, a lot of people. So they estimate at least 20,000 people, if not more, in this gathering, in this crowd. And so uh, the other reason this is really, really super important is this is the only other miracle that all four gospel writers account outside the resurrection. So you have all four gospel writers accounting his resurrection, Jesus' resurrection, and the feeding of the 5,000. So there, there's importance to this. There's, there's deep value to this. And so uh, we're going to jump in. We're going to start in verse 10. There are a few things we need to, uh, to set us up first before we actually get into uh, the miracle itself. Verse 10, this is what happens. On the return, the apostles are coming back from last week uh, where Jesus, or Jesus had sent them out. They told him all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. And when the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Okay, so the apostles were sent out. They did a lot of miracles. They were empowered by the Spirit of God, by the person of Jesus Christ. And they come back, and they're, they're telling them, hey, we did everything you said. Hey, we raised the dead to life. We cured diseases. We saw the lame walk. And we also preached the kingdom of God. We, we told people about their need for a Savior, the future provision of your Son that will actually cure sin and ransom people into a new kingdom of God, that God is a king, that he does have a kingdom, that there is a way in. It's only through repentance and faith. So they do all that, and they come back, and they're tired. Like that's, remember what he said? He said, hey, go out on this massive journey. Don't take anything. Right? So they were learning to trust on Jesus and in Jesus and be content. And so they come back and say, hey, we did everything you said. We didn't take a staff, didn't take a bag, didn't take money, didn't charge for our ministry. And we came back and we're tired. And so you know what I love is that Jesus actually cares that they're tired. Um, you can read other gospel accounts where I think Mark says, hey, let's get away to some place secluded and let's rest for a while. So Jesus, I believe, gets them in a boat to basically take a, a four-mile trek. See, Galilee kind of goes up. They get in the boat, and they, they're going across, and um, they're, they're getting rest. They're getting solitude. And um, as I was just kind of looking at this, I thought, just for a moment, it is so beautiful that Jesus cares about the mundane, the seemingly mundane. Now, now if you're like me... <laughs> Maybe some of you are different, but you feel guilty when you rest, right? Like I'm not, I'm not doing something, or I'm not doing enough. Especially maybe the men in the room, you feel like if you're not working your tail off, you're not dragging on the ground and doing this, that, that somehow you're not more as righteous or holy. Or you know, there is there is deep, deep good theology in your rest. That Jesus actually wants you to rest. That, that he actually created sleep. It's actually an act of worship that when you lay your head on the pillow and you close your eyes, you're actually trusting in the God of the universe, the sovereign one who, you know, he's going to keep everything going while you're asleep. That if you don't check your email for, a, for an hour, Pluto's not going to blow up, right? Like, I mean, this is what, there, there are important moments in our life we need to press pause, we need to stop, we need to breathe because it actually honors God's an act of worship and Jesus understands that he made you in such a way to where you need rest. Now, I don't think this is totally mindless rest. Because I think the idea here is actually Jesus saying, get away with me and rest with me. There's intercession. There's rejuvenation. There's, 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 there's rest with Jesus. Um, and I think this is just super, super important times where you, and I think this has to involve prayer in your Bible. 
right? I mean, if you're, if you're constantly taking rest, but you're just on your lazy boy, tuning out the world, that's okay for a time. But if there's no prayer and word involved, then you're not really getting rest from the everlasting rest. You know what I'm saying? Like you're just getting something to block out the chaos. And you're not leaning into the one who's going to give you and realign your mind into what's true. Um, can I just say that this happened for me this week? I hit a wall Wednesday. I was going through my week. I, was, I, I just can't even get into the details where I literally, by Wednesday, was so depleted by just demands, pressures, everything else, even external things, other, other friends, things happening and within your house. I like forgot I had a family. It's like halfway through Wednesday, I was like, I have a wife and a kid? You know, it's like one of those, those moments where I just shut off my phone and just for two hours prayed and read and just sought Jesus. You know, it was so good for me in that moment to just remember, wait a second, wait a second. He's in full control of everyone. He hasn't called me to do that job. That's God's job. Okay, what does he call me to be faithful in? Just to read and pray and cast anxieties on him and cares on him and let him minister to you in those moments? Like if you've got no space in your day where you've got that type of rest, it's no wonder you come in here so dysfunctional and restless and angry and just... Because you're playing a role that God never asked you to play. And so, so look, listen, that's going to flush out differently for all of us, this, this rest that you get with Jesus. I mean, I remember how when I was in college, it was just always in the afternoons, late afternoons, evenings. Right then I met Kristen, I got married, and she loved to stay up late and sleep in. So then it was mornings, and then she started teaching, and so I started doing afternoons. Then we had Jackson, and there's no good time. Right? So I, you know, then you got to like really pray, pray for discernment to figure it out. But, but you need to figure that out. And you maybe need to replace some other loves with that. And watch that change you. That's why I love community group. I mean, when we were there Thursday, it was just a time for realignment again. With other people and prayer and discussion and not focused on all these other things, right? What ways do you get in divine rest? What ways are you laying your soul before the good God? And so um, I just, I, I love seeing that. I think that's something we could miss very easily in Jesus constantly doing this. Let's get back to the text. They get over to Bethsaida. This is a little podunk town. There's really not much happening, not a lot there. It's, it's uh, basically across a four-mile boat ride, eight-mile run. Okay, and here's what happens is as they get to the Capernaum district, and a couple of disciples are from there. Uh, Peter, Philip, I think Andrew. So this is like a hometown for three of them. Uh, they're going back over to this place. Interesting that Jesus took them there. Don't really know why he took them there. I guess he thought it was remote. It was desolate. Not desolate like a desert. Like desolate like it's just lonely. Like there's nothing really there. Okay? It's like, I don't know, Vermont. All right? So, or Montana. I don't know if you're from there or you love it there. Praise God. But I don't think there's a lot there. So, um, so, so here's what happens. Mark tells us that, that the whole crowd sees them get on their boat and go over. So they run. They actually do the eight-mile run. The Capernaum 12K is full in effect. They run to meet them on the other side. So they have maybe a four-mile on-the-boat rest, time of rejuvenation. They're with Jesus. And when they get off the boat, it says the people are right there waiting for them. Now, at this point, Jesus could have been so annoyed. If, if I'm a disciple with Jesus and we get across and I see the crowds again right there, you see them running around the outside of Galilee as you're taking the boat, you're resting, you're just like... Just not looking forward to docking because you know what's awaiting you, right? Jesus could have been so annoyed, so frustrated, but what does he do? Mark says he shows compassion on him. He sees him and he sees that the need for giving divine truth actually trumps your need for rest sometimes. And so he just starts teaching the kingdom of God. 
He starts healing illnesses. He sees their suffering. Amazing. As he heads into rest, he actually stops and sees them. And I love how Mark says he saw them, and the reason he had compassion is because they were like sheep without a shepherd. You know, sheep will die without a shepherd. They don't know how to protect themselves, don't know how to walk right, don't know how to be guided right. And so Jesus, the, the chief shepherd, starts showing them how he can cleanse them of their sin. How he can bring them into the everlasting fold of God for everlasting protection and guidance and rest. Beautiful. He cares about these people that would seem to interrupt his day and annoy him. Jesus has compassion on them. He cares about them. Amazing, amazing, amazing thing that we're seeing. And so the message from Jesus to them and to all of us is he doesn't just have compassion on your physical body. He doesn't just care about, yes, your physical pain, your physical ailments. He cares about your soul. His compassion on your soul. So he doesn't just provide physical rest, but he's a source of everlasting rest. Now we're going to see this intensify in the heart of Jesus. Look at verse 12. This whole idea, this, this idea that he cares about the mundane, he has great compassion, he cares about us in, in deeper ways than we really think. Verse 12, now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said, send the crowd away to go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. <laughs> okay, so there's over 20,000 people in this crowd, just jammed together, it's chaotic, people are probably annoyed. And, and hunger's starting to kick in. Now listen, they're in a desolate place. There's not, you know, McDonald's down the street. There's nothing. Now it's not desert. Mark says there's green grass. There, it's nice. So it's, it's, it's flourishing as far as grass and shrubs and flowers and all that. But as far as getting a meal, nothing. So people are starting to get hungry. People are starting to get a little bit annoyed. Stomachs are starting to growl. And I think the disciples realize it too. They're like, we're getting hungry too. You know what, these people, you got to, Jesus, you got to send them out because it's going to take them, some of them forever to get to their, their village. It's going to take them, you know, we've got to do it before dark or maybe they can go stay somewhere at somewhere else. But they're going to all want a meal. They're all super hungry. We've been out here all day. This is getting old. I mean, just imagine 20,000 people for a minute. We say, oh, yeah, there are 20,000 there. 20,000. Okay, some of you don't even know what that means. Okay? <laughs> Never even seen it. 20,000 people. Jesus is just supposed to send them all away, send them all get lodging and food, do it before dark comes. This is amazing. And I think there's a little bit of selfishness here in the disciples, right? <laughs> I think they're sitting there basically thanking themselves, we're getting hungry too. There's a long way to go back home. I'm really annoyed, I'm very hungry, and all of us know we get hungry, we get really, really weird. Women especially. I love you, but let's just be real, okay? Right? The wives in the room know when you get hungry, you get weird. Same thing with the husbands in different ways. But you get weird, right? So you picture a chaotic, annoyed, disgruntled crowd of 20,000 in a desolate place with nowhere to go. And here we have Jesus, them pleading with Jesus to do these things. And here's what's interesting. I'm surprised the disciples at this point don't just peel back to where they just were and what they just saw. I mean, where'd they just come from? They, they just came from an internship where they saw dead people brought to life through the power of God. They saw limbs extended. They saw new organs put in. They saw blind people seeing and deaf people hearing. I mean, they just came back from this amazing journey. Tell Jesus all about it. And 
already the unbelief is quick, quickly come back in. Wait, you think he can't just provide some food? I mean, did you see what he just did? I mean, maybe they forgot about 2 Kings 4 when God multiplied food. They knew the Old Testament scriptures. They're already forgetting acts of God throughout redemptive history. How he has done these things and performed these things. I mean, how quick are we like this, right? God acts and shows up in our lives in profound ways. And the next day you grumble and you whine and you have unbelief. No way. He can't do that, though. We're not even thinking spiritually, right? When they were thinking spiritually for a whole week. And they're confronted with something and are doubting his ability. And I love how Jesus says, well, you feed him. <laughs> Is he kidding? I mean, I'd probably get a little bit respectfully annoyed, right, at Jesus? Are you, are you kidding me? You want me to feed him? And I, I love how you just kind of see the responses here. Um, but, I mean, have you ever been asked by God to do something that just seems crazy? And you're thinking, there's no way I can be obedient to this, what he's just asked me, whether it's through you getting your face in the Bible or through hearing a sermon or through a time of prayer. You know God is saying, do this. And you're like, I can't. Well, that's because it doesn't depend on you at all. Depends on the, the source of the one who asked you. So when, when the God of the universe or Jesus Christ says to do something, you're not relying on you doing it, relying on the one who has the ability to do anything. Right? So that's where our faith is, right? I mean, I mean, every spiritual discipline, every act of faith, every putting to death of sin is belief in the God who has already done it and can do it through you. It's not about you all of a sudden mustering up courage or getting stronger or more disciplined. You're relying and resting and finding power in the very one who is enabling you to do those things. And that's what he's doing here. He's looking at them saying, hey, why don't you do it? Seeing if they will realize who, he, who they're with. I, I, I know Jesus is sitting there going, guys, you just saw what I had you do. You're just on your internship. You just saw what, what I was capable of, how I, I'm God, how I'm I'm able to infuse and, and give ability of authority that you never thought you could comprehend. And here you're already in unbelief of anything I could possibly do with this crowd of 20,000. You're just saying they need some food. So he just kind of turns the table and says, why don't you feed them? Always really with an, another motive. And you've got a lot of different, I think John's gospel says Philip looks and is like, uh, we only have like 200 denarii. I don't think we can do that. Mark's gospel says that they're looking going, I don't know, we're going to work for eight days before we could pay for this many people. You're crazy. They can't process it. How do you expect us to feed them? Verse 13, they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish. That's because at this point, Jesus told them to go look for food. He says, hey, why don't you guys go see if anybody has anything? So they scour the whole crowd of 20,000 people, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we go and buy food for these people, for there were about 5,000 men. <laughs> so they're going, okay, well, we go buy food, but you know, we're poor. We don't even have enough money to go to McDonald's and get a kid's meal. Like, this is the type of attitude they have. And as they go, they find a kid, they come back and say, well, we stole a kid's lunch. He had five loaves of bread and two fish. Here you go. This is what we got for 20,000 people. Now, I don't know, when you guys used to read this, I'm going, what kid eats five loaves of bread for lunch? I mean, seriously. Like, that's why you got to understand what this is. These are 
that word loaves is not loaves like you've got your Vermont bread at home on the, not four or five of those. Can you imagine? A kid, what kid does that? He must be Goliath. So what you've got here, this means biscuits or little crackers. So standard diet in the Sea of Galilee, he takes some pickled fish, little fish, you put them on a cracker and eat them. He just had five little biscuit crackers and two fish to put on them. That makes sense. That's his meal. So now you're going, okay, now it's even more crazy. Five little crackers and two pickled fish to feed 20,000 people? What is Jesus doing? Verse 14, and he says to the disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and he had them all sit down. (laughs) Guys, everything about this story to me is so insane. There are 20,000 people, and Jesus is able to command 20,000 people to organize themselves in groups of 50 and sit on the grass as they're hungry and annoyed. I mean, what, what type of power is that? This is like an impossible command unless you're God. Hey, everybody, split up, groups of 50, sit on the grass. And sit there quietly. I'm going to do something. And they all do it. They all do it. Aisles, hillside restaurant, it's full in effect, ready for the waiters, right? And I'm sure they're all going, what is he doing? I'm sure they're all scratching their heads. Including the disciples, right? And you know what's interesting to me is no one says, why? Why are you putting us in groups of 50? I'd ask probably, right? I mean, what, what, you think we're going to get fed? What, I don't understand what's going on. Do you want us to starve in groups of 50? Now separate, we all grumble together and pray about it? I mean, I don't know what you're doing. And so here he's got a, he's got a, a reason. Jesus has a reason for all that he does. And everyone's sitting there scratching their heads wondering what this is about. Verse 15, he takes the five loaves and two fish, looks up to heaven, says a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves, gave them to the disciples, and set them before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. Okay, so Jesus takes five biscuit crackers, the two pickled fish, and it seems like he's playing a cruel joke, like like he's mocking everybody. You know when someone just eats that juicy burger in front of you when you're really hungry? Right? They're just holding in front of their face with that dessert that you really want when you're really hungry. Imagine people going, what is he doing? He's just doing what any Jewish father would do day in and day out. They would put their hands on the meal. They would look up to heaven and thank God for who gave the good gift of food. And then he would say a blessing. Here's what's amazing as he does this. He begins to break up the crackers and fish. And he just keeps giving it to the disciples. And he keeps giving it. And he keeps giving it. And the disciples are waiters running up and down the aisles. Imagine how many trips they had to take to feed 20,000 people. And he just keeps giving and keeps giving food and keeps giving food and keeps giving food. Until it says they were all satisfied. That's to gorge yourself. Like we're not talking like he gave a cracker and half a pickled fish to each person. He gave an overabundance. He provided a whole boatload for everybody to where they're stuffed. They can't even eat anymore. And and as I'm, I'm reading this, as Jesus keeps giving and keeps giving and keeps giving, 
where did the food come from? <laughs> Ex Nilo. Genesis 1 and 2. It came from nothing. I mean, you've got the very one who makes everything from nothing and who nothing is made if he doesn't say it's made. Like he is literally having crackers that were never planted in barley made. He has fish that were fresh and were never dead or alive and never swimming, perfectly ready, perfectly tasteful, ready to be given to everybody. He just keeps grabbing from nothing and making food. I mean, this is the divine one that is the only one from creation, Genesis 1, that's demonstrating his ability as the Messiah, as God in human flesh, to literally take out of nothing, I mean, matter that doesn't exist and make it happen. Now, here's what's amazing. As he is acting this out, as he is demonstrating his divineness, as he is demonstrating his godness, has he not been doing this through his whole ministry? Making something out of nothing? He's been giving people new organs. He's been changing fabrics in the eardrum and in the eyeballs to allow people to see and to hear. He's actually taking dead hearts and making them alive. He's actually putting limbs on people that weren't there. He has been making something out of nothing since he stepped foot out of Mary's womb. Amazing. Can you imagine sitting at this at this, on this hillside in green grass, you're starving, and you're, you're trying to even kind of see, because you just see him keep giving the disciples food, and you're going, I see he's got no baskets, he's got no barrels, he's got no place, there's not some like fishing line that's bringing in the rest of the fish, he's got no more crackers stuffed in his pockets, even if he did, maybe it would feed 20 people, he just keeps giving and giving and giving and giving out of nothing. Amazing, amazing. I mean, just, I can't imagine sitting there seeing this miracle and looking at people eating and being fed and being stuffed, right? I love that they were all satisfied. And then one of the most interesting things to me, he tells his disciples, hey, go around and get, up all, get all leftovers. Now, Jesus isn't like anti-litter. Listen, I, I've read the craziest stuff out there. They think this is Jesus demonstrating he's the environmentalist God. Okay, that has nothing to do with this, okay? It's not that he, he cares about, I mean, I'm sure he cares about throwing trash. Don't get me wrong. But, but his concern is he just continues to show how unbelievably active and involved down to the dot and tittle he is with everything. Because they all go. And they fill up all the leftovers, and how many baskets are left? Twelve. That's not random. I bet the disciples hadn't even eaten yet. They're busy feeding the whole crowd. And he made so much food, just enough, that even when they gathered all the food and came back, they each had a full basket to eat themselves. All right, here you go. Peter, James, John, Nathaniel, Thomas, Andrew, here you go. You guys got your own. I know you're hungry. Don't worry, I saved some for you. In all the chaos and all the majesty and all the amazement, I still, I'm still concerned about you eating. Amazing to me. That's, that's amazing to me. That, that, that it's effortless for him. That he knew even in the demonstrating and giving of all of these things that he knew exactly what everyone there would need. Now what is Jesus ultimately doing? 
he's showing them and us that he is ultimately not just the giver of spiritual or physical food, but spiritual food. Because here's here's what happens. If you go to John, the next morning in his gospel, the day after this miracle, everybody comes running up to Jesus. And they're like, dinner was sick last night. What's for breakfast? They all ask him, right? He's like, he stops and he says, hold on. You're coming to me just because you want food? What does he follow it with? Man, I'm the bread of life. You taste me, you take me, you're always satisfied. You never hunger again. It's not about, it's not this bread that you eat and then two days later you're hungry. You taste Jesus, you take of Jesus, and I eternally satisfy your soul. That's what he is showing here. He's, he's also fulfilling, I think, the Old Testament prophecy of, of Jehovah, the one who provides. He's showing that he provides endlessly. Jesus does not provide a self-help program. Like, he doesn't provide temporary fixes. He doesn't provide just a temporary taste or a temporary satisfaction or a temporary longing that you have is now, you know, still going, still going, still going. No, when you encounter the risen Son of God in Jesus and you see that the wrath-absorbing cross of Christ did all for you and put you in a family where you got eternal compassion, forgiveness, mercy, kindness, rest, all of a sudden you don't need anything else. You don't, you don't need to chase other things or chase other pleasures or chase other loves or chase other wants. He's demonstrating that, man, He's the one that endlessly satisfies your deepest hunger. I mean, this is back to the Sermon on the Mount. The one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness will be what? Satisfied. You hunger for a righteousness outside of yourself. Now listen, I mean, so many of us, even maybe functionally or, or subconsciously or whatever, we are searching for a righteousness or something outside of us, a, a God or whatever it is that we think will satisfy our souls. And you keep hitting the ceiling, and you don't realize that you're taking from something that was never meant to do that. So here's what's mind-blowing. We all do it. We take that gift, we take that food, we take whatever it is that God gave us as an act of worship, and we worship that thing, and then when it doesn't come through for you, you get mad at God. That's so weird. Because God's saying, I never made that thing to do that. Like, I never made food to endlessly satisfy. I never made relationships to endlessly satisfy. I never made marriage to endlessly satisfy. I never made your job or your work to endlessly satisfy you. I made those things to worship the one who gave it, who does satisfy endlessly. So you worship me, you're found in me, and I cure that ache in your sin-stained heart. And so, so the, these people, you got to understand, they come back, they want nothing to do with Jesus. They don't want to admit their need for sin. They want to admit their need for physical needs. Meet my physical needs. I don't care about my spiritual needs. Meet my physical needs. And he's going, hold on a second, hold on a second. I, I could do that all day long. Man, I could roll out 50,000 buckets for you. And you don't want to admit your spiritual depravity and your spiritual deadness and your self righteous religious heart that's what self-righteousness and religion does it just puts a veil over reality right and so you think in all the things you do and all the things you're found in and all the the you know your great relationship or marriage or you can do anything right the great attributes you have the great way you work your promotion your it doesn't matter if that's where it is and then it falls short eventually which it will i mean what bread are you eating the bread of life or the bread of this world that is still a good gift from God, but it was never meant to do what you might think it was meant to do. So here's what I ask you is, is what meal do you constantly sit at the table 
for constantly that you think is meant to satisfy your hunger spiritually? I mean, what is it for you? And maybe you can trace from that place where your bitter heart is rising up or your discontentment is rising up or your anxiety is rising up or your fear is rising up and you're realizing the weight of what you're putting on that thing, that meal can never do it. And Jesus is going, man, I've I've given you all of these good gifts so you'd see me, so you'd want me, so that when you taste of me, you're good. You're satisfied knowing that, see, see, and this is why getting alone with God, getting rest, and these tie together. Because when you're alone with God, I don't know if, what it's like for you, but man, it's just you and him. Like, like, all truth is laid bare, right? Like, you can't, your heart is just exposed on the table, and you got no excuses. And you can finally do some surgery then. But if you're constantly going, 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 just eating, eating, eating from all these false gods and false beliefs and false loves, false satisfactions, if you just keep doing that over and over, you never stop and say, okay, hold on, what does the, the written word of God say? What does the God of the universe who made all this stuff that I'm eating say about the purpose of all that stuff? And all of a sudden you start, you start seeing that he is what you're supposed to be after. It's just amazing. It's so scary to me that these people ate one amazing meal on the hillside of Galilee and left going to hell. That is so scary. Because they missed it. They totally missed it. They come back to Jesus going, man, can you just give me some more of that? This is pickled fish. You know what's amazing? I mean, how good this meal was. No one's sitting down going, no thanks, I don't like fish. No one's saying it. I go all the time. People are like, oh, I don't eat fish. You'd eat that fish. Trust me, this is Garden of Eden, this is delicious, this is divine fish and crackers where people are going, I've never had anything like it. And it's just a taste to lead them to who? The giver of it. And Jesus is going, you're not even looking at the one who gave it to you. And so you're not spiritually discerned, you're not aware of your spiritual need or your spiritual sin. Or Blessed is those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for you'll be satisfied. That's a promise. So if you're not satisfied this morning, then you're obviously eating at something else. Sitting at the table of something else. You know, they if if you keep if you if you keep reading, it's amazing because they at this point try to make Jesus king. And they don't do it because they see that he heals their spiritual need. They do it because they think the kingdom of God at this point is. No illness and free food. That's a pretty sweet kingdom. I'm in, right? Give me that kingdom. They don't realize that the kingdom of God, the kingdom that Jesus preaches, the kingdom that Jesus teaches, the kingdom that the apostles will go on to and Peter will go on to and Paul will go on to and Lord willing, faithful pastors in the church of Christ today will go on and preach is, yes, there is entrance into a kingdom of God and it's not about no illness and free food. It is about people who see that there is a king who has a kingdom, and the only way into that is the provision of Jesus Christ alone, who hangs, bleeds, dies, rises, and gifts his spirit for those who realize that he can squelch their desperate need of sin to be removed, their dead heart that's not beating, that's sitting in the grave to be made alive.
And those people who throw themselves on the mercy of Jesus find everlasting rest, life, food. We're going to sit one day at that meal that Revelation talks about, at that supper. You know why it's going to be so good? Because of who you're with. It's not going to be just because the food tastes good. Glorified body, without sin, with the one who ransomed you and rescued you to himself. And your satisfaction level for eternity will be one line. See, see that's why we've, we've, we come in this room. We've got to get to reality over and over. We've got to realign ourselves and say, hold on, what's, what's true? What's true is if you're in Christ, you will have unending satisfaction. You will. And you have it now. And it, is, it will continue on throughout all of eternity. Jesus offers himself. Some of you are in this room this morning and you're not a Christian and maybe you really want Jesus because you think of what he'll give you, provide for you, help you with, and he might do all of those things. He might show tremendous mercy and kindness in those ways and that's because he's gracious and good. But his ultimate message is always, I love you too much to just give you Band-Aids. I dig in, I do heart surgery, I, do, I give you your deepest need and it, and it costs God his life. It cost him a slaughter. It cost him shedding blood. It cost him agony. It cost him carrying the wrath of all sin on himself. And he did it. Let's take some time just to consider Jesus and consider him as the bread of life and the meal that we must take. And um, I want to just give you a moment in closing just to one, if you're a Christian, to sit back at the right table. This week I was sitting at the wrong table till I hit Wednesday. I was sitting at the table of approval, of people pleasing, of how I looked, until I sat back at the table of Jesus and he realigned me and said, You have me. It's okay. I've resolved your sin. I've given you my spirit. I call you to be faithful. I don't call you to save the world. God, help us to take some time here to examine, to reflect, consider. As we take the Lord's Supper to remember the preciousness of it. God, how deeply valuable is your broken body and shed blood, the meal that we take that reminds us of the all-satisfying nature of Jesus. May we take that seriously this morning. May we consider that this morning. May we take time to confess sin before we come to the table, remembering that we're made right only by you. We're not made right by communion. We're not made right by good relationships. We're not made right by a promotion at work or a healthier marriage or changes in our children or anything outside of the sovereign work of God and the crucified and risen Savior Jesus. Push our eyes there this morning in Jesus' name.